All right, we're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. Uh, doing a Monero coffee chat with the uh, original Monero coffee chat. Oh, you're not even doing coffee today? No, I just have water today. <laughs> you don't want to ruin your brand. <laughs> you know, I think I've only had coffee for a third of the coffee chats. Okay. And I think collectively among every one of the participants, it's probably only about a half or two thirds of the time even. Yeah, I like I like to do these during the week just because um, I work during the week and then I just kind of do them I like like to do them right after work. Uh, with the Globy one, we had to do in the morning only because of uh, being on the other side of the world. Uh, but I see you're you're kind of only available on the weekends. Because uh, are you still a student? Yes, I'm a full time student. I'm at the University of Minnesota. I'm doing finance and management information systems, so I still have that going on most days of the week. But um, I still like to contribute to Monero. I've done it for several years, and I still want to continue finding ways to get more and more involved here. Yeah, because I mean, the amount of time you dedicate is uh, tremendous, right? Uh, I'm, I'm seeing, I see you all over Reddit, all over Twitter, uh, doing these videos every now and then. And I can only imagine what you're doing behind the scenes and then I guess traveling as well. Um, seems like you're dedicating quite a bit of time. Um, yeah, this between the work I do with Monero and the work I do with my student group on campus, I have a cryptocurrency club student um, on campus. It takes up a lot of time, but since I enjoy it so much, it, it doesn't really bother me. Um, I'm the type of person that really likes to be busy. I'd much rather be running around trying to juggle all these things than to feel bored at any point. So for me, it's a great challenge. I really enjoy it. Um, and I would not enjoy it so much if I didn't think Monero was a great project to contribute to. And I didn't think that there were important aspects to contribute to in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But I, I think it's highly important. I'm highly interested in it, which makes it a lot easier. It makes it so much easier for me to dedicate the time I have toward making these communities better. Yeah, I feel like I didn't even properly uh, introduce you. So Justin, uh, how, how do you pronounce the last name? Justin Ehrenhofer. Ehrenhofer, and uh, also known as Samsung Galaxy Player. Um, has that has that been a a name following you around pre Monero, or is that a was that your what it started as your originally anonymous Monero uh, handle? It just started off as my high school Reddit handle. Okay, um, I I didn't have a smartphone at the time. I just had like uh, an Android equivalent of an iPod Touch that were really popular back then, and. The name of the device was a Samsung Galaxy player, and I was super uninteresting and just named my Reddit account the name of the device I was using at the time. And I tried to get away from it slightly. <laughs> You'll see if I'm on IRC, it's SGP to sort of shorten it uh, to break an affiliation with Samsung since I'm not really sponsored by Samsung in any way and don't knowingly use any of their products. But... <laughs> <laughs> it has stayed with me a little bit. At this point, I don't think it's worth changing, um, but that's sort of the way that I, I got that nickname in the first place. And as I started to become part of the, the Monero Reddit community and got more involved, I, I 
carried the name over and it sort of just stuck that way. Uh, were you uh, were you using Reddit pre-crypto or was, because uh, for me, I, that was kind of my my first use of Reddit. I mean, I had known about Reddit, but I never really like went on there. And then it was when I first started to like try to learn about uh, Bitcoin and crypto, that was like the go-to place. In fact, even that was a little bit of a learning curve. I don't think people even realize that to go from non-Reddit world to Reddit world. That was even <laughs> a little bit of a, like, oh, it's a, a new thing. Yeah. Was uh, yeah. were, you, were you on Reddit before crypto? Yeah, I was. I, it was a good way to spend downtime in class in high school. I mean, that, that's really what the original motivating factor was. Um, Is that how you discovered, got into crypto or was it elsewhere on the uh, interwebs? So I first discovered Bitcoin actually on the Colbert Report back when it was its own show on Comedy Central. And Colbert was joking about how this online asset with nothing back it has any value and perhaps could be volatile and was making what was that that was like 2012 or something 13 um it was probably 2013 2014 um okay. I could, it was if, if you want to look up the in interview it was this, it was colbert specifically interviewing someone from npr speaking about why this has any value and it could have any value and that was that was the first time i really remember hearing about it at all and I had already spent some time um, mostly through boredom in high school uh, messing with like Tor and I2P just to figure out how they worked I even messed a little bit with Freenet just trying to understand how they worked so I came from I don't want to say a significant background because I was a high school student that didn't know what I was doing but I came from a background of already at least knowing what these were and an intrigue of trying to understand how they worked. And I carried that over to Bitcoin. Um, I, I started messing around a little bit, learning about how it worked. I remember I initially downloaded and synced to Node, mine for about a week, didn't earn anything because I was just using my laptop. And then I think promptly uninstalled it for a, at least a long period of time after that. But when I started getting more interested in the technology, it definitely helped having some previous, at least some exposure to Tor and I2P because it really helped me understand that Bitcoin didn't fulfill a lot of the privacy guarantees that it was, or at least that were portrayed in the media. And I was like, there has to be someone that also acknowledges this problem and there have to be some people looking at technologies to try and mitigate these concerns. And so I was hopping around on Stack Exchange, basically looking for uh, question, questions and comments about these different technologies available. I ran into Dash first. Um, I didn't. I was learning about the sort of a coin join system that they have, and it was actually a comment from Andrew Polstra on one of the Stack on some random Stack Exchange post somewhere. Um, he answered and went into detail about what ring signatures were, which then ultimately led me into Monero. And I found it interesting enough that I wanted to continue learning about it. And it sort of spiraled out of control from there. So it was an initial, I want to learn how it worked. And then people, other people had questions about how it worked. And I want to be like, I want to help answer your questions. 
And you think he's the guy behind the uh, essentially the Monero white paper, the uh, the crypto note. Who oh, Andrew? Pol <laughs> yeah, Andrew Polstra is uh, Nicholas von Saberhagen. Gotta be somebody. <laughs> no, is is that ridiculous? I don't know. Well, he's he's kind of like the leading right right the leading mathematician in that in in that field right of a lot of these uh, privacy. Yeah, he, he has done a lot to contribute towards privacy technologies in uh, distributed systems and continues to provide research. Um, I, I recently watched one of his talks on Mimblewimble. So he's he's not designing Grin, from my understanding, but he's pushing the Mimblewimble technology forward mm -hmm. and is a major contributor in those technologies. Um, so... Yeah, he's still a very active player in this in this space. If there was someone that would have the expertise, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully, Grin doesn't go in this, the same way as Bitcoin, I guess, from that perspective. But um, someone would perhaps have the expertise to carry that out. Okay. <laughs> um, if you want to make speculations on the show, yeah, like, nah, there could be worse ones. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> um. Hmm. So did you kind did you kind of have this natural uh or not, I don't want to say was was your inclination towards um you know protecting privacy and did you have these like philosophical beliefs before you found Monero and crypto or was it that you discovered Bitcoin you were looking at it and you're like uh it's not as anonymous as uh, it claims to be, and that's just kind of an issue with what this technology should be, or is it that you actually are a supporter of these kind of libertarian views and, uh, you know, pro-privacy, things like that? Like, how, how did you, what, what gets you excited about Monero? Is it really that it's just like kind of checking off a technical box that we need fungibility in crypto, or is there um, more to it? And you're kind of interested in like the philosophical and political aspects of it as well, like the the repercussions that come with creating, uh, you know, a, a distributed currency that can't be censored. Um, I think it's a little bit less from the political side generally. Um, to be pretty honest, I'm generally pretty liberal. Uh, I, I'm at least in the U.S. I support pretty strongly liberal policies. But, well, so what was your interest in things like Tor then? It was just uh, just because the technology was interesting or? I think that was the initial spark is that we had these really cool tools that people could use. Um, I, I think that they provide a strong opportunity for people to do good. Um, I mean, of course, there's an opportunity for people to do negative things, but um, I think generally those are outweighed. And since this is a technology, it, it, it's not like we can hand wave it away. It'll it'll always be there. People, there will be someone that's contributing to this. And um, I, I love John Oliver's episode on encryption, for example, where he's he's like, you, you can't really just outlaw encryption. Um, if if you outlaw encryption, then like to avoid all the regulations you have, someone needs to download just signal or the wire or whatever they're using in order to use this map. It's hard to prohibit someone from using map. Mm -hmm. And I think that cryptocurrencies really are a fascinating way where, like, I generally have faith in the Fed in the United States. We, we have a very stable system. Um, 
maybe not as re much recently, but generally we have a stable system as far as countries go. And um, I, I think that even if there isn't a lot of significant utility, um, especially in highly developed countries where they generally trust the, uh, the central banks and the, the issuers of, of, of currency, that cryptocurrencies are still fascinating. They're still interesting. And there are many benefits that a, a, a essentially fully digital cash implementation could, could provide. And I think one of the really important traits that that would have is fungibility. So I'm generally a really strong supporter of fungibility. I think that even if some people possess the technical capability to try and take on the role of, of auditing the funds they receive, I think that ultimately the people that lose out in this system where, you, where, where it's not fungible are the everyday people who transact. It's not going to be the banks that lose out. It's going to be the individual people who unknowingly accept bad funds. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think privacy is really important from that perspective. And I just thought the technology is fascinating. Our ability to just have a system where this, the, the operators of the infrastructure of the system are able to, to contribute to it, collectively control it without any outside party having a significant ability to have, or an ability to have a significant impact over the system. And I just wanted to be a part of it because I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, you mentioned um, in one of your tweets, fungibility is determined by the lowest common denominator of privacy. What did you, uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so when people talk about fungibility, this is one of the, this is something I'm really passionate about generally. But when people talk about fungibility, they normally come about it from the perspective that like I have tainted funds and I want to spend them. How do I fix a situation where I have tainted funds? Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the sort of right perspective where we shouldn't be asking, I want to, uh, we shouldn't be worrying as much or the conversation should not be focused on someone worrying about the ability for them to spend funds. Um, the conversation should be someone, it, it's, it's similar, but instead it should be someone accepting funds that they cannot spend. So if you are a merchant that is receiving funds, if you are in a fungible system, you should have, have no regard for the funds you're accepting. You should be able to accept Monero or whatever token you're describing without without looking at the previous history, without worrying about it being tainted. If you have a subset of your project that uses a privacy system and, and a more transparent system, perhaps you might exclude this the, the tokens that are in this private system for the sake that they are more likely to have come from a tainted past, or you might not accept the public tokens because you're worried about them potentially having some, some taint to them. So it's almost like an additional level because if you receive token, if, if you have optional privacy in a, in a system, uh, in a, in a system, sure, you could potentially receive tainted coins and try and clean them later, but you still have a public association between you and those tokens that's recorded forever. So you still, even if you have the ability to potentially wash tokens in the future, 
you still have this association that you do not want to have. And therefore, it really isn't fungible because you need to worry about these potential associations. Mm. So um, in my opinion, there are ways to make things fungible in practice. I sort of have um, like fungible as one extreme. It's, in my opinion, a, a spectrum. And nothing will ever be perfectly fungible. Monero isn't perfectly fungible. But it, it's pretty close. And in my opinion, it's, it's fungible in practice. Another way, uh, and so, so privacy is one way to make something fungible in practice, where you're unable to discern what the history of these coins are. Another way that it might be fungible in practice, not in every circumstance, but enough that people don't really need to worry that much, is if uh, large governments passed a law saying that you are not liable at all for the funds you received. That would really go a long way because a merchant could still, from a political perspective or whatever it might be, try and avoid using these private tokens. But I think that's at least generally less significant than um, at least the current status quo where regulatory environments are pressuring recipients of funds to, to go the other way, where they want exchanges to assess the, the history of funds to see if they are tainted. Wow, to meet KYC and AML requirements. So I think that that's government intervention is one way that actually could help fungibility, even on a, a relatively not private asset. But I think privacy is one of the best ways to guarantee a level of fungibility where you don't need, where you can have fungibility despite uh, a potentially adversarial government environment. So I think that there's, there's value that Monero brings to the table there because you have a system that is fungible in practice without regard to everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, leaving it up to the regulators and government seems, um, doesn't really seem like what, what, what crypto was built for, right? That's not like really what the crypto anarchists were about, I, get, I think. Right, it's more about want you know having the the technology and having the math determine it, so that we're not relying on on uh, society to make that determination, uh, because it may be fungible one day and then the next day they may decide that it's not fungible, right? Uh, yeah, they they could theoretically there's no all of a sudden start imposing these rules on people, and you've sort of seen that with Bitcoin really where. People didn't care, and then they started. Some people started to care, and then more and more people cared even more. Right. So, but like, so like Sweden, Sweden could say, "Hey, uh, from now on, you know, one Bitcoin always equals one Bitcoin in Sweden, no matter what." Yeah, um, and then you would have a bunch of tainted coins being being right. run through Sweden, right? <laughs> for, for the for the whole world to get on board, and for all the governments of the world to be like, you know, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. It's just. It's not. It's not going to happen, and uh, I, I mean, I don't see how that would ever possibly happen. Uh, so I guess the the thought is this stuff needs to be baked into the technology itself, similar to the way you know, um, you know, an atom of gold equals an atom of of, of gold, um, right? It's not. You're not relying on government to tell you that. It's just. It's just built into built into it. It's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, we, we have the ability to not care about this, right? We, we, we have the ability to, to make mathematical systems that can create fungibility regardless of the environment. And so I think that there's, there's value in, in 
having that sort of system in place. Yeah. So yeah, what may, why, why is fungibility then so in, so such a critical element of, of this versus Bitcoin where they seem to care less about it? Why do you think it's such a fundamental element to what crypto needs to, needs to be? Well, I don't even think it's just something that crypto needs to be. I think it's just something that any mechanism of exchange needs to have where, I, I mean, I, I'm highly concerned. Um, like, I don't know if I, I, I often don't even accept Bitcoin payments because I, I, I know that in the moment I can't audit the source of funds I'm receiving, right? And so that it's really worrying. It's kind of odd that if someone on the street was like, I'll just give you a free Bitcoin, you might be obligated to say no, right? Because you don't want, you might be worried about the potential previous history of that coin. And even if you're getting value, you might your like Coinbase account shut down because you accepted some free Bitcoin or something. And I, I think that's ridiculous. So I think from a, a practical standpoint, you really need fungibility in a system in order for people to, to use money in, in the way they assume it's used, right? I, I think that the idea of assets not being fungible is kind of news to everyone because we've grown up using cash, even using credit card and digital payments we didn't really care, right? It, it, we, we can just use money because it was fungible. And the ability for it not to be fungible, or the, if you have a situation like you have a Bitcoin where it's not fungible, people, are, people need to relearn what it's like not to have fungible money. And since it's all digital and it's able for everyone to assess across the entire world, you don't really have an escape where people just didn't know or weren't exposed to it or didn't have the ability to check. Instead, this information is readily available and there's pressure for people to use it. So people are. And I think that over time, the situation will keep getting worse and worse. It's sort of the realization that people generally have with Facebook though, or had with Facebook, is that there are a lot of warning signs that they were collecting a lot of information about users. Um, and generally don't care about the privacy of most of its users. And many enthusiasts were, essentially privacy enthusiasts, were complaining about this for years, but it, it took uh, revelations about the election and the potential impact they had on the, the US election in order to get people to realize that, oh wow, this is a consequence of, of using these systems. And it might take another big moment like that with Bitcoin's fungibility for people to understand. It might take a really high profile case for people to really have to connect with, for people to really understand it, or else like, people don't get upset about the fungibility of Bitcoin unless their Coinbase account has been closed, or unless they receive ransomware payments, or they go to make a local Bitcoins trade and receive tainted Right. And even some of these things are pretty niche. Not that many people are making local Bitcoin trades compared to the people buying it on regulated exchanges. So I, I think it will take a big moment for people to really realize it. My hope is that we don't even need to get to that point. Hopefully people can use fungible systems to begin with and not have to worry about it. People shouldn't have to worry about the specific technology that Monero is using or the fact that it's fungible they should be able to use money the way they assume it works 
And one of those assumptions is fungibility, but if it's not met in practice, I think it'll take people some time to realize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if 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 Bitcoin's good enough, then they they'll just use it uh, without realizing um, what it's lacking. Uh, did you read that? I think I even posted it in our Telegram that that it's an old article from a few months ago that uh, uh, Michael Casey wrote. Did you? Um, where you basically said it's called privacy is vital to crypto and the global economy. Yeah, the CoinDesk article. Yeah, I just I, I just think that re he really boils it down well uh, in explaining uh, at its crux the importance of fungibility. And he basically he basically arrives at fungibility uh, essentially being a matter of free speech um, because he defines money as a communication system, right? It's just it's just a way to communicate uh, in, in by in by transferring value, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's similar to a language, um, except you know in in this case you're transferring value through this communication system. So um, the only way for that to work efficiently is if every unit equals every other unit. And I mean, that, that's kind of the, the way I like to look at it in its simplest form. But what do you think of that kind of that free speech argument? That, you know, honestly, that's a pretty tough question because... Because that, that's really what it, what ex, uh, kind of what excites what I would say excites me the most about fungibility in Monero, because I yeah. really do think that's what it boils down to. So, personally, so I, I have generally mixed opinions, um, and I think most of it results from U.S. politics in general. That. Um, it, it's something I generally have to reconcile with is that we're building a system that allows people to transfer funds with a high level of privacy, a high level of fungibility. And at the same time, generally in politics, I have some concerns over how some, some players are, are, are essentially taking advantage of the system in politics. So, um, I, I hesitate to say that money is free speech. I think that these privacy systems are important in money, but it's not. Yeah, I, I, I generally come about the importance of privacy and fungibility from a different perspective. And I think that generally comes from different political beliefs that I generally have. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I can understand why uh, I understand the logic behind that perspective that you that you shared in the article. Mm -hmm. and, um, like even if I don't fully agree with it. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's jump. Uh, you mind if we jump around a little bit? Sounds good. So how did you, I guess, how did you, we didn't really talk about how did you actually start to establish your role in the community and what, how would you actually define your, your current role? I mean, I know it's an open source community, everybody just kind of labeling themselves. Um, you're certainly vitally important at this point it seems like I, you know you, you seem to to really have uh established yourself as a like a real connector and a leader it's you're, you're helping pushing projects along you really help um get the word out on explaining the technology to i guess you could say the masses um 
but what would you define your role as in the Monero community? So my self-imposed role <laughs> uh, that I've is um I, I usually say Monero community work group organizer is, is usually the, the title that I defer to. Uh, in early 2017, I was studying abroad um, in Austria. I was out of Vienna. And I, as you generally have in study abroad programs, you have a lot of time to go and travel. A, a lot of the experience is getting out, viewing different perspectives, viewing new things. And so you're not, I mean, you are a full-time student, but the expectation is not that you're spending the entire time in class and studying. The expectation is that you're learning other lessons by getting out and, and learning about different cultures and perspectives. So I had a lot of additional free time um, outside of class that I normally don't have, um, at least to the same extent here in the US. So I had a lot of time to get more involved in the narrow project. And I sort of weighed my options. I am not a, a highly technical coder. And so I, I weighed the option of learning how to code to be able to directly contribute to Monero. And I still want to become more technical over time, but I've I, I realized, uh, not that it would be bad for me to learn to code, of course, but I, I realized that if I spent the entire summer doing nothing but learning how to code, I would be the worst contributor to the Monero ecosystem, right? <laughs> some of these people have been coding for decades, understand cryptography on top of the coding that they're touched. They really implement these highly specific and highly specialized uh, systems and, and highly specific code. So I would be the newest of the new person after all my time dedicated to that perspective. And so I was, I pondered for it, pondered for some time. And I decided that instead I wanted to spend most of my time going out and talking about Monero and privacy systems. So I use the form funding system requests. I use um, the free time I had on weekends to go out, travel to different parts of Europe, and communicate with other local communities around about Monero and about the importance of privacy and fungibility, making sure that they understood it. And at the time, I was one of two or three people that were really talking about Monero at the time. I had taken a lot of inspiration from the speeches Ricardo uh, Fluffy Pony had done at previous conferences and previous meetups. And I even asked him for a copy of the slides so I can base my initial uh, information off what he had and sort of have adapted that over time. But it was a really good way for me to get more involved, to force me to better understand the mechanics of how Monero worked and to be able to communicate them to people in a way that they would understand um, and it was really the best way that I could have a meaningful impact in the Monero project. That it was the largest impact I could reasonably, reasonably offer. So I started getting involved there by speaking with people about it. Then early, uh, early 2017, um, after I had already given a few talks, the Monero link paper came out. This was uh, a paper that had analyzed the traceability of Monero up to the implementation of Ring CT. And the community was generally disgruntled with how it was released. It, it literally was released the day of one of the hard forks that was, that was going on in the narrow ecosystem. And so we, 
we worked together. I helped lead an effort to author a response to these offers uh, to these authors to discuss some of the concerns that we generally had with the paper and some of the recommendations that we had going forward. So that really helped me get more involved in understanding ring signatures because that's what the majority of what the paper was about were these ring mm. signatures. Mm -hmm. So that was my initial dive into the sort of I, I'm taking more assertions here. I'm I'm putting my name next to some descriptions of Monero's privacy, its impacts, and its ring signatures specifically. And I wrote a follow-up to that paper early in 2018 about uh, like the second iteration of the paper. That's on the Get Monero website also. And I think it's a generally a very good response. Uh, the authors of the paper mentioned that they were generally very ha very pleased with the response that I, I wrote for them. and. I'm actually mentioned, I just realized this a few days ago, that I'm actually mentioned uh, in the first paragraph of the acknowledgments of the paper. So I'm very pleased that that has um, resulted the way it did. But that was just my involvement, sort of getting a little bit more involved in the research ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, another huge push to really understand it was, again, early in this year, early 2018, when... Monero V, um, which is an airdrop on Monero, announced that they were doing a Monero like announced that their existence of their existence and their intent to fork Monero. And although we had heard of other airdrops that other coins were had, and that they were kind of all the rage back during that time um, mm -hmm. in the wave of Bitcoin Cash, uh, at least holding value over time, so that allowed people to easily pump split and dump um and so we should have seen that trend coming i just never associated it with monero and so mm -hmm. we we kind of had to scramble there and understanding the implications of this um i ended up making a a video which at the time was the best comprehensive resource we had about what the potential impacts to monero the chains will have and I didn't get it fully right. I was a little off on some of the time windows, for instance. But in general, it was a good collection of information. And then I, I used the information I had learned to argue for Monero to change uh, the ring size that it had going into that network protocol upgrade in order to provide better protections against these potential attacks that like, were new to us. There, mm -hmm. I, I don't know of anyone that had thought of this sort of attack before and luckily we were able to comprehend it before like the first change will happen which um actually wasn't monero v uh the bigger impact was monero split um did its normal upgrade to uh, version 7 and the a6 stayed on version 6 and um you had like monero original monero classic all, all those things mm -hmm. so we will probably still experience similar splits in the future and it's important to recognize these aren't community splits necessarily it's just someone hey i don't have to I, all i need to do to make my own coin is not upgrade my software someone's going to do it so we need to understand the impact of these and i think that uh we we generally feel very comfortable with the situation we're in even now and especially after this next um protocol upgrade mm -hmm. uh, next month 
when I really think we can put this concern mostly behind us, even if it is, even if there is a large contentious community split, I think would, our privacy should generally be okay. So I, I, we've really come a long way there. So what, um, come a long way in what, in terms of understanding it or uh, actions we've taken to uh, kind of nullify it? So really both. So when we went, the first step was understanding it. And then the second aspect was actually making the tools to mitigate these concerns. So uh, once we understood what the, the major concerns were, we updated wallet software so that even if you're using a fork and have no idea of the potential privacy ramifications of what you're doing or consequences, it will purposefully generate transactions so that you don't contribute to either networks um, or at least don't directly contribute to either network's uh, degradation of privacy. And we have increased the ring size, which we basically expanded the built-in buffer that we have in Monero to protect against these scenarios. So there needs to be a significantly greater adversarial scenario for it to have any meaningful impact on the network. Um, and we also developed blackball tools, which I know you wanted to talk about today. Those just help users avoid known bad funds and uh, the ability just to have these tools um, is important, especially for really small ring sizes. Um, so we're mostly past the need for it now, but it still could have some benefits in highly adversarial environments or if a pool or something is trying to attack the network that you would, um, you, there's a, a built-in additional privacy feature you can use there to better protect yourself. So these that's really, something that when you say to like, that's something that's like, how, how do you even go about using that tool? So um, it's, it's changing a little bit for the, um, for this, this protocol upgrade because the wallet software and the structure is being upgraded to a more efficient lean process. But on MoneroBlackball.com, I outline the general steps you need to take in order to run this Blackball tool. And you need to essentially scan the database that you have locally, the, the blockchain database, and create a new database with a list of bad outputs and then scan through them again and again until you have a, have a list. And then with the current situation, it basically just exports a, a text file with one output per line. <laughs> and then you can import this in your wallet. Your wallet software will purposely avoid using these outputs that are listed. Mm. The actual structure of those files is changing slightly to be more efficient, but that's generally the same process that will occur. You will search the Monero blockchain and compare it against other blockchain databases, um, compare it against public pool data, and look to see where any ring signatures are compromised, and if they are comparing those outputs against uh, against other ring signatures um, to see if there were any chain reactions that occurred. Because if, if I have a ring signature and all of my decoys, all the other outputs I selected are known to be false, they're known to be spent in other transactions to the point where all these other decoys are known false, so mine is known to be the real one, Mm -hmm. then you should also exclude the real one that I spent because you know it's spent in that transaction. So uh, that, that's the concept of a chain reaction that you have a ring signature, but it, the ring signature was it is void, essentially. It's useless. Um, so that's um, 
the black ball tool helps prevent helps protect against those scenarios. Um, if Monero has a really large ring size, the black ball tool, although it's always useful, it just might not be significant or meaningful. Mm -hmm. And as we get to ring sizes larger than 10, like we will next month, we need to worry less and less about these tools. This was really a major concern with Monero's ring size being three, five, mm -hmm. uh, maybe seven under under chain split circumstances. But with 11, I'm, I'm confident that under really any scenario that we can anticipate, even a combination of scenarios, that um, Monero's ring signature's built-in buffer is large enough that most people probably don't need to even worry about using this tool. Because even if three of their ring members are compromised, I mean, they still have seven others. So it, they need to worry less and less as time progresses. Yeah, I mean, ring signatures seems to really be where like the rubber hits the road with Monero, right? I mean, it's um, it's kind of where we're getting most of our privacy, and then it's also where we have to really figure out how we scale, right? Isn't that yeah. kind of our? If anything's preventing easy scaling, would you say it's kind of the the ring signature component of Monero? Is that fair to say? Um. So. It's hard to say that it's the only thing that we're worried about, but it, it definitely imposes a, a real trade-off we need to make, um, specifically between uh, the privacy offered by ring signatures and the verification time that we have in ring signatures. We're less concerned now, luckily, about the size that these take up, but they still are pretty cumbersome to verify. And as a result, um, we really need to make a trade-off between the privacy that's offered uh, to verify that against real use cases and, and real threat models. And then we also need to weigh this against the uh, us potentially making the system less accessible. So uh, luckily we had like a really shining moment with, with bulletproofs where everything got better. So we were able to get more flexibility there and we are taking advantage of it. Um, in order to provide better privacy. But suppose we wanted to do something truly crazy, like raise Monero's ring size to 1,000 for every transaction. That, and from a privacy perspective, 1,000 is, is better than 10, right? But you need to quantify, okay, what under what circumstances does that actually matter, right? Um, does it matter? And number two, um, by increasing this ring size, are you actually hurting your privacy by making it so that most people aren't using Monero anymore because it's too cost prohibitive? Or it takes too long for them to download a blockchain now, so you have fewer people running full nodes, the network is more centralized, people generally rely more on these remote nodes and therefore compromise more of their privacy that way. So uh, not, not to say that you compromise a significant amount of privacy, but if, if everyone used a more centralized model, then we're making real sacrifices for the network. So these are real trade-offs we generally have to make. Um, ring signatures are the best technology that we have available given, and to echo what, uh, what Sarang was saying when he was on your show uh, last week, uh, they provide the best, uh, they provide a high level of privacy under the scenarios that we feel comfortable with 
where within Monero, we don't want to have a trusted solution. We don't want, um, and we want it to be verifiable. Um, so they, they really are good at doing what they say they're doing. It's, um, and I think reasonably under most use cases, people um, shouldn't, don't, really don't need to worry that much either. Um, we're sort of, uh, a lot of work in Monero Research Lab recently has been determining heuristics possible in order to test against different scenarios. So saying, okay, well, I, I can't prove you did something, but something generally looks suspicious. So um, that might be problematic for a KYC AML exchange who might hold your funds for a certain period of time or require further verification or, or something. Um, and, and that's a lot of, a lot of work has generally gone there and we still have a lot of work to do. Um, but I think ring signature, ring signatures are generally at a really good state. And um, there's always the possibility for sidechain solutions. There, there are so many different solutions Monero can choose from in order to improve its privacy. I, I'm generally not concerned. And I think it's far more important to have a, a base system where there's, um, there's certain guarantees of privacy on the base system so that as you're interfacing with these other systems, you do not need to worry as much about metadata leakage. And I think that'll be a big thing going forward. Where, um, yeah, what'd you think of Jimmy Song's tweet? Uh, yeah, so, where he basically said, you know what, uh, we don't even really need, I don't even know if we want privacy and fungibility on the, uh, the core protocol level of Bitcoin. So that's interesting. So I think that generally optional privacy has has generally been shown to be a, a pretty bad idea. I think if you generally... What do you think of his reasoning, though? Like he, he's basically saying, you know, then we, you can't uh, audit, audit, the, uh, audit the chain to know, you know, how many coins are in existence. Yeah, um, so I, I think I definitely understand the arguments there. And I... I um I definitely like for in Bitcoin's case I, I generally buy it. I think that for Bitcoin it would be very contentious and I don't think it would necessarily even be the best for Bitcoin to move to a system where I, I, I don't want to say it's it's impossible to audit, but it's it's more difficult to audit. Um, mm -hmm. for, for example with Monero. Um, it is auditable, but it's more difficult to audit. We right, need it requires more trust in math, but it, well, it, not necessarily that it requires more trust in math, but you need to know what you're testing against. For Bitcoin's case, it's it, it's pretty simple. Like if I double spent on Bitcoin right now, right, and was successful with it somehow, so, somehow broke the protocol to to somehow double spend, how would you immediately learn about it? I I don't I don't know. I guess uh, if people are analyzing the blockchain, I, I mean, I don't really. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly. You're not you're yeah. not just going to get like a big warning notification right. on your phone that is initiated by you. You might get a so, someone who is investigating the blockchain notice there is a discrepancy and then warn people about it. In a similar way, it works like that with Monero, where you the the problem is you you often don't know what to test. So you, uh, so like in the past, there was, there was a major flaw in Monero's key images for Ring CT, and we, we didn't know where the flaw when it was originally implemented in the protocol. 
But once the flaw was found and, and understood, we were still able to run a test to, de to determine if it was exploited. Um, so it's a similar mechanism in Monero where like just running a node isn't necessarily going to tell you of something if, if you if there is a flaw that is like a severe flaw. Um, instead, you're going to have to test it against something. And with Monero, you can still at least do that. You can run a test to make sure uh, that money wasn't generated out of thin air. Uh, like we saw with Litecoin, for instance, people were reusing coins uh, or were manipulating these these ring CTP images in a way that allowed them to double, triple, quadruple spend. So um, you could still test for that behavior. So I think that's generally an important distinction is that, uh, but the, the issue is that sometimes it's in retrospect, right? Is that it's, you can test in retrospect, but it's harder to test as things are happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to understand the vulnerability better. So I think there absolutely is value out of a system that is really easy to audit, that is really easy to test for. Um, but I, I don't think that, I, I think generally people far overlook the metadata leakage that happens when you go when you have a lot of association between a private or transparent system, um, I, th I think that the ability to settle against a system where you don't have leaked metadata is going to be highly valuable. If people want to make lightning if people want to make lightning network transactions for their efficiency, there will be a high value of settling against a coin where the transaction amount is hidden. Um, because you don't need to worry about the, the leaked metadata there. Um, like for example, Zcash, uh, not that I wanna use them necessarily as a terrible example, but their transparent and private example uh, or systems leads for a significant amount of leaked metadata. So they have, I mean, better privacy than Monero within the fully private system within a fully shielded transaction. But as people interface with this, the shielded pool, they leak a lot of data and they were able to attribute 69% of the funds that touched this, this, the shielded pool to specific addresses on the transparent blockchain based off the leaked metadata. So it's sort of interesting how you have what would otherwise be a perfectly private system, right? You have, you have a system where you don't know anything about the funds being transacted within the system but the second you interface with it in a different way, all hell breaks loose, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that as you build solutions on top of projects, the real value will come from the, the small attack surface. Monero really shines because it has a very narrow attack surface. You do not, I mean, sure, ring signatures aren't perfect, but they still provide a lot of protection. And you don't need to worry about transactions amounts being visible. You don't need to worry about addresses appearing on the blockchain. Those are all general guarantees that you have. And it really narrows the amount of information you can learn about a user compared to the information you can try and find on, on a transparent Bitcoin-based system or, or, or Ethereum-based system or, or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. So there, are, there definitely are, va are uh, values out of transparent systems. But for the goals that we're trying to achieve, and it might be that we're just trying to achieve different goals, and I think that's fine. Um, I think there's definitely 
room for, I think there's a lot of need for there to be a system that is itself, uh, like on, on the full chain itself, protective against many of these metadata leaks. I think that will prov provide a significant value to sidechain solutions that are built in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it feels slightly disingenuous when the Bitcoin maximalists are now starting to say, um, well, we don't even, we may not even want privacy on the core protocol. Um, I just, I just think that's a real stretch to start to uh, say that they may not even want it for those reasons we're talking about. And now I guess the, the argument being, well, we'll take care of it on the second layer. But uh, I mean, what, what do you think about that lightning as a second layer on Bitcoin? I know this is like the question that everybody's trying to figure out. Will that make Bitcoin more fungible? Will it make it more private? Like you said, you're settling back onto a transparent ledger. Um, you have those leaks. So, I mean, what is your overall feeling on that? Do you think lightning on Bitcoin uh, equals or supersedes Monero as is in terms of privacy and fungibility? So I, I definitely think that lightning will bring many benefits to Bitcoin. It's bringing additional efficiency. It's bringing additional privacy. It's, it's bringing additional fungibility. But to equate that to the level of protection that Monero provides right now is, is generally false. And there are so many caveats involved, um, especially with general metadata leaked, that, mm -hmm. that I hesitate to, 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 to say that that is a reasonable, um, a reasonable claim. I think that uh, it, it certainly brings benefits uh, over what the existing system is now. But they aren't the same level of general privacy guarantees. Um, if, if you're using light, and, and I will say with the caveat, I'm not a lightning expert. I'm not familiar with all the nuances of lightning, so I'm not specifically going to speak to all of those today. But they, to, to say that a system that interfaces generally with a transparent system, um, essentially is a, is a multi-sig time-locked, uh, set up as you, with, as you make these payment channels, um, sure, they provide better privacy than a direct on-chain link. But really, I, I don't think that's the same level of privacy that you would get out of Monero. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that it, it's a really fair comparison. And um, and, it, and if you say it's more fungible, then, then you're making the claim that uh, generally, if you're a merchant, you're only accepting lightning payments. You're not accepting Bitcoin on-chain payments. Um, and I'm sure that there are some resignating effects that help on-chain, but ultimately you're still out there to accept the lowest common denominator, right? Your lowest common denominator of privacy doesn't change on the system. So fungibility might be slightly improved, but it still isn't especially great. Mm -hmm. So um, to answer one of the questions from Vincent in the comments, who said like, is Lightning compatible with Monero? Yes, Lightning can be built on top of Monero. And I think that putting Lightning on top of Monero will allow for these really easy, facilitated, inexpensive transfers of funds um, with slightly weaker security uh, promises, right? You don't have a full on-chain transaction, but for your coffee, who cares, right? Um, 
you, you can buy your coffee without having to worry about leaking any of the metadata to go back on chain. You can buy a coffee on your way to buy a house, right? Like, <laughs> um, could lightning, cause I mean, I, I, another issue, you know, I obviously don't fully understand lightning as well. And I, I there seems to be a lot of that going around. I think there's only so many people that really are really getting this at this point. Um, cause it's on the leading edge of the tech. Um, but the issue of lightning on top of Bitcoin in terms of being sustainable, the way Bitcoin is, is architect architected in terms of, uh, the block reward eventually ending. Right. Uh, whereas in Monero, we have the tail emission because I'm just, somebody had brought up a scenario on Twitter. Uh, so if we're all poor, if Bitcoin is essentially all, everybody's porting over to the lightning network, right? Lightning network works. Everybody moves over, essentially starts transacting on the lightning network. Um, there's not going to really be any transactions being made on the, on the base blockchain of Bitcoin anymore. Right. I mean, other than settling to the chain, but what's really the incentive, what's going to be the driving incentive to do that. Uh, and then, so how is mining going to be sustainable when you don't have one that you, know, you don't really have transactions happening on the blockchain itself and eventually the block reward disappears. So what, what, what are miners, if everybody's on lightning network, how, how is mining sustainable at that point? Which leads me to think like, on Monero, I could kind of, all right, well, Monero, at least we have a tail emission, right? Yeah, I, we have a tail emission. I would, I highly recommend you speak to Arctic Mine, who is a, a Monero core team member about this. Mm -hmm. This is his level of expertise specifically. Um, he gave a talk at DEF CON about Monero's tail emission and Monero's block issuance and, and block size. Other relevant details, and I think he would find that very interesting um, in, a, in a way that is far better than the way I could potentially answer that. Right yeah, now. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It just struck me as obvious when so I was like, wow, that does sound like a, a pretty big problem. Um, I mean, granted, you know, the block reward on Bitcoin is, is going to be around for some time. But if everybody, if, you know, if the, if the goal is to move everybody over to the Lightning Network where all transactions are going to be taking place, I'm starting to to not understand where the security of the network is going to come from if there's little incentive to mine. Yeah, I, I personally haven't really spent too much time in that perspective, but I would I would I would love to hear Arctic Mine's position on that. Um, I think generally it is an extreme to say that no one will use the chain. Um, ideally, you'd have similar complementary solutions that would make the chain more efficient. Um, and if no one's using it, then the fee to use the chain is essentially zero anyway. So I think that would mitigate the, the argument. But um, I, I don't have a exact solution for that. I don't. Okay. I don't. I'm not very familiar with. Um, so I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'm going to continue to uh, explore this question, obviously. But uh, so Lightning Network on Monero, obviously, is something that you know is technically feasible. Um, and then you're all, you also hear things like Mimble Wimble as a side chain. Um, what does that mean? And do you, I mean, I know these are big questions, but is that like we would have Lightning Network on, on Monero and then we'd also have Mimble Wimble as a side chain or is it we're get, there's going to be a, a, 
one or the other type thing. We're trying to figure out which one is, is going to be the best option for scaling and maintaining privacy. Uh, but I'm, I'm hearing multiple um, kind of options here for our scaling future. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I generally agree with uh, Ricardo's statement here where, like, if a new technology comes along and is available, you might as well support it, right? So, um, ultimately, though, we'll be restricted to, like, based off the developer resources we generally have, we'll have to prioritize what systems would provide the, the best advantages. But in an ideal situation, you would have Lightning, you would have Mimblewimble, you would have a ZK Snark sidechain, you'd have a ZK Stark sidechain, you'd have merge mine sidechains on the side like Tari. You would have so many different interfaces on top of Monero, um, so many different shared components on top of Monero. And there really is no, I, I think generally there are like very strong arguments for why you would want to support as many solutions as possible. Um, I mean, there ultimately will be some that people gravitate more towards. If, if Lightning provides the benefits that most stakeholders in the ecosystem want, then Lightning will be more widely used. We might prioritize uh, hiring uh, researchers and developers for a Lightning solution. Or maybe someone independent makes their own Lightning solution. Or, you know, whatever it might be. Right? So Monero itself, on the protocol level, or at least the expectation from an error on the protocol level is to support as many of these solutions as possible because we're still early enough that, uh, like there are pros and cons about both, but the, the, the dynamic of what's better under what circumstances will probably change over the next few years. So with Monero, we want it to be as flexible as possible generally. And if someone comes with a, a large motivated development team that wants to work on one of these side layer implementations, there's no, there shouldn't be no technical reason why they shouldn't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it would not interface with Monero's consensus protocol level. Um, if it takes a special wallet, so be it. Someone will make a special wallet. Well, perhaps if it's popular enough, it might be interfaced in the, the official wallets. So, um, yeah, just support everything, I guess. <laughs> Did you have a, do you have any uh, reasons why you would not want to support all of these, I guess, ex except for just a limited number of developer resources. Uh, no, absolutely not. I'm just I'm just trying to understand it from um, a technical perspective as whether or not is it is it a choice that's going to be made by the community as what, you know what's the best way to go. Or I wasn't even I, I personally wasn't even thinking of it in terms of there being all these multiple options. Um, obviously, if that makes technical sense, then sure. Um, I guess there's advantages to kind of having everybody moving in one direction, right? So you have kind of uh, more development happening on, you know, in one area, you know, more network effect. Kind of like, I mean, in Bitcoin land, everybody's uh, this kind of mass agreement that Lightning Network is the next stage and that's what, we're work that's what they're working on and that's how they're going to scale, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess we just haven't really reached the, those crossroads yet as to, you know, getting to that next second layer. I mean, I know Tari is starting up. I guess that's kind of what's spearheading it. Is it fair to say? Yeah, but they're, they're helping spearhead that movement for sure. Okay. So yeah, I, th I think we're just in an earlier stage, right? Mm -hmm. Than Bitcoin in terms of figuring out our, our, 
are scaling in second layers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that, or a, a very large part of that, comes from uh, some of the, the limitations of Monero's protocol generally. Um, we only recently added basic multi-sig. We're adding more advanced multi-sig. Those papers were finally recently published. Um, so those technical requirements on Monero are needed for these for these solutions, and we're just now getting there, right? We're just now making Monero flexible enough to support these solutions. And I think that the community, I'm sure developers and researchers and community members and miners and whoever else might have a stake in these in these decisions will uh, in these solutions will come together and. and They'll argue their position for why they prefer that Monero developers pursue a certain um, certain technology or certain technologies over others, and I think that'll come down to technical limitations. But I think ultimately, ultimately, we shouldn't. Um, Hold, we on should Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Well, it looks like I have a floor here. Um, any questions you want to throw in the comments? I'm happy to answer them. I'm not sure how much. Apparently, two seconds. Perfect. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry about that. I had a surprise visitor. <laughs> no worries. Uh, sorry to cut you off there. Um, just good. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, there was one time I was doing a, an interview, and what um, <laughs> someone some maintenance person in my apartment came in and was like knocking it off. I just come in and <laughs> replace it. <laughs> so low budget production over here. <laughs> but um, what what'd you think of Aaron's article, which is basically everything we just talked about, but um, what was your kind of your overall feeling of that? Uh, you know, he's writing, he's doing, he's been writing about the privacy coins in general. Um, and then he he just recently wrote about Monero. Um, he's basically saying why Monero is hard to beat, but also hard to scale. Do you think it was kind of a fair assessment? Because I don't think there was even any mention in that article about the Lightning Network, op you know, all these second layer options for Monero. Yeah, so um, before he wrote that article, so right after he wrote the Dash article, I reached out to him and said, like, here's some more information that you can link in your Dash article. And if you are writing one on Monero and Zcash, which I assume you are, any other privacy technology and coins, I would be happy to be a resource you can use to answer some of these questions. So um, last week, or earlier this week, we, we scheduled a call and we spent like an hour and a half talking about Monero and, and Zcash. And um, he mentioned some of the, the concerns with Monero's larger transactions. And I, I pointed out that bulletproof proofs um, were available and we're moving to them next month. Also that, um, that Monero can be um, uh, pruned. You can, you can remove some of the unnecessary transaction data and tests are bringing it down to about a third of the current blockchain size right now. Um, with, with additional potential. And um, I'm, we, we sort of came back, I think this is generally just a dif disagreement of opinion, um, where, I mean, from my perspective and from the perspective of most people in the Monero subreddit, 
um, that are advocates of Monero. We feel that uh, like, like given every current on-chain blockchain solution, none of these are scalable, right? Like none of these are perfect. They're not be able to go to a wide level of implementation. So trying to make them or putting all of your eggs in the basket of trying to make it efficient is futile because it never will be. Or at least from the technology available at the moment, it never will. Be. So that means that Bitcoin and Monero and all of these other projects need to use second layer solutions, right? And from my perspective and the perspective of most Monero advocates, we say that it's better to take an, an efficiency trade-off on the blockchain since it provides better protection on these sidechain layers. Um, and people who prioritize things like efficiency are going to use these sidechain layers anyway. And you can use a sidechain layer without too much concern like you have to do settling and stuff for, for lightning, of course, but without a significant amount of concern for on-chain, right? You, as long as it's efficient enough, you don't care as much. So we sort of come around this from two different two different thought processes, right? Where where Aaron and most other Bitcoin uh, proponents generally, not saying, not trying to speak for him and his beliefs, but generally Bitcoin proponents say that we want to keep the chain itself as as lean as possible, which generally is a very good recommendation. And if people want additional efficiency or privacy beyond the chain can provide, that's what these off-chain solutions are for, or side-chain solutions. Mm -hmm. with, with Monero, we, we actually generally take a, a pretty similar approach where we want the blockchain to be lean because it's important to get as much stuff off there as possible. But we don't um, want to sacrifice... Yeah, but we, but we want to have the guarantees of privacy that, that we're familiar with. We mm -hmm. want to hide transaction amounts. We want to reduce the metadata as people are interfacing with these Lightning Network systems, kind of what we've spent most of today talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, th those those aspects are very important to to Monero enthusiasts, to, to Monero advocates. We, we think that that is generally a, a better solution to mm -hmm. start with the privacy you should still make the chain as efficient as possible, of course, but it's okay if you make a trade-off for the sake of privacy. And because you can make that up on a, on a side layer solution better than you can make, sorry, just to simple to make this a little more clear. You can make up uh, efficiency on a side layer solution far more effectively than you can make up privacy on a second layer solution. So, yeah, I think it's it's kind of analogous to if you told Bitcoin, because um, I think these really it, it's it's we're really looking at it in the same way, which and they kind of go through this you know uh, weird logic where fungibility no longer matters. But I mean, censorship resistance obviously matters to them, right? Um, that no, nobody no nobody in the Bitcoin core community would say, oh, let's uh, let's do censorship resistance on the second layer, right? I don't think you know you know that, that, would, that, <laughs> yeah. that, would, that would never make sense. Um, yeah. But yet they don't they don't put fungibility into that category as being required for uh, censorship resistance, right? Um, and yeah. I mean, obviously, from my perspective, I think privacy is important for security and censorship resistance, right? Um, 
I acknowledge there are different opinions. I acknowledge that some people think that sidechain solutions will provide a, a good enough solution or something that they feel comfortable with. And so I think that's an important acknowledgement to make. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something I agree with, but that's the perspective they're generally coming from. And I think it's just they, they can't, they don't have the ability of adding it to the Bitcoin blockchain at this point. I just don't see that happening. So at, at this point, there's no reason for them. You know, they're, they're, they've settled on the fact that it will have to be on the second layer. Um, I, don't, I don't see them adding confidential transactions without the community completely being split. I, I generally agree with you, yes. So he also brought up some interesting points, though, too. I don't know if you if you agreed with these. Um, he was talking about a scenario where if if uh, essentially Monero users were kind of opting out of the privacy and that, you know, the the protection that ring signatures gives us would eventually break down if enough people opt out. But that doesn't seem like a realistic scenario. I guess you're saying because everybody's going through these exchanges. Um, you, you get what I'm saying? Did you yeah, pick so, up on that um, point? That seemed like a, a far-fetched uh, concern. Yeah, so this is... Um, luckily, th this concern still impacts um, like the legitimacy of the outputs on the Monero blockchain or the... Uh, in a similar way that uh, any other attack would. So it affects it similarly to a chain split attack. It affects it similarly to a zero decoy attack, um, which are no longer possible. Um, but uh, the concern generally is that if a very large number of Monero, uh, of Monero outputs were revealed to large exchanges or even the public, um, that it could be detrimental to privacy. It could start to have these chain reaction effects on these ring signatures. Um, so, for instance, suppose that you had, as a regulatory measure, all the major Monero exchanges required to post their view key publicly for everyone, which is mm -hmm. a, a very unrealistic scenario, but suppose that might be what happens. Um, the concern is that you could use this data in conjunction with pool mining data and every other view keys that are available in order to have some insight over a lot of outputs on the Monero blockchain. That's the concern. Yeah. Is it realistic? Probably not. Um, do ring signatures provide built-in protection against these scenarios? Yes, they do, just like they provide built-in protection against, um, against all the other attacks I mentioned, including these chain split attacks. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a concern. And, and, and if we have any, uh, I, I think we generally feel comfortable with the, the buffer, again, that the ring signatures we, we have right now provide in the network current scenario. Um, and I think that um, in order to address this problem, we might increase the buffer, whatever it might be. Um, but that's, We've been looking uh, as an area of research, starting with these public mining pool, pools that have a lot of public facing data, mm -hmm. sort of started there to determine, okay, what proportion of trend, uh, network transactions and outputs are public and wonder what scenarios should we be concerned and what they can do. And we've come up with some pretty novel techniques that don't even 
cost anything else. They're just a different way of doing things that um, would would help the network and help preserve these outputs. So we definitely have the opportunity for many solutions to mitigate this problem. Um, I think this, these concerns are acknowledged in Monero, like MRL one and MRL four, I believe, um, at least one of those, where like if, if everyone makes their data public, well then you don't have a private pool to hide in anymore, right? So that that that's that's generally what the argument boils down to is that if everything's public, nothing's private. Well, well yes, yes, you're right. So we need to encourage the private pool to to stay private. Um, and, uh, and from the and from the standpoint of exchanges too, I mean, I, I think that just kind of pushes us, continues to push us towards decentralized exchanges, right? Oh, absolutely. One of the best protect one of the best ways to ensure this doesn't happen is to encourage decentralized exchange use. That seems it, at this point seems inevitable to me. Um, I don't see why we won't be in a world where decentralized exchanges will be, you know, the new centralized exchange. I mean, centralized exchanges are efficient and provide a lot of conveniences. So there's value there. But do you um, think we're moving in that direction in crypto in general? I mean, you have I, all this KYC, AML. I mean, it's becoming difficult. You know, it's like companies like Shapeshift now are, are starting to, you know, have to implement that. Um, I think it's really starting to hit home with people. I, so I think generally um, the people using exchanges are typically those that are, are trading cryptocurrency that are there to make a profit. And so their, their primary motive is to make a profit. So they want a convenient way to make profit. They want a convenient way to, 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 to handle other people, to easily handle their funds. And I think centralized exchanges will most likely meet their needs better. But I still think that nevertheless, there's a, a large enough group of people that are interested in these priorities of security and privacy that decentralized exchanges will continue to make sense um, and will act as a hedge, especially in adversarial environments where uh, governments might be trying to restrict the use of exchanges. Um, or in the case of Monero, where you really care about your privacy, and do not want to use a KYC AML exchange that these decentralized exchanges provide a lot of value. So I think as these systems continue to get better, better sort of narrow the efficiency gap, make it more convenient, um, they'll continue to get better. But in a way, it's a sort of chicken and egg scenario where people go generally where the volume is, and if there's no volume, people won't go there. So you need a BISC has, uh, which is one decentralized exchange that supports Monero, has really been trying to encourage volume. And um, have you used them? Yeah, I, I mean, I have it on my computer right now. <laughs> how's it? How's it work? I mean, is it somewhat user friendly? Is it something? How does it? How does I it mean, feel? I I have a I have a favorable view of it. It's definitely not easier than using or more convenient than using uh, most centralized exchanges. But it's it's nice knowing that it's there's fewer trust requirements. Um, and uh, like I said, I think there's generally value there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I just see that getting bigger and bigger. And I think it has, right? The stats, it's, it seems like it's growing, right, Bisk? Yes, it generally has. Um, and I think the interest in decentralized exchanges has grown too. There are more projects involved. 
um, their own novel implementation. Most of them don't make sense, but just the mere large number of them shows that there's at least interest. <laughs> like there's a market for it, right? Um, and uh, I don't think they've grown as quickly as centralized exchanges, especially during the uh, during peak hype of 2017. But they uh, nevertheless have still seen more use over time. Did you say you had mentioned in the uh, chat that you had something to maybe say about ring signatures from the Monero Research Lab, some kind of new insight? That was yeah. Uh, so generally, um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. This is where uh, okay. Brandon. I'm speaking with Brandon later, where he's showing me a diagram, so I make sure I understand it a little bit more thoroughly. But we've start uh, the Monero Research Lab team has devised better mechanisms for assessing different scenarios where we can start to find where any incremental increase in ring size is negligible. Um, where like the difference between 100 and 101 is is essentially nothing to the point where you don't need to care about ever getting to those numbers mm -hmm. as an example. And with the most recent tests they've been doing, um, they're looking at certain this is where i need to more thoroughly understand what these scenarios are but they're looking at some of these specific scenarios where okay what situation does a higher ring size not really contribute anything more and for the specific test they were doing which wasn't a strong heuristic test so this is generally from my understanding an underestimate but um from a probable test that 25 is about the level where it doesn't really, any increases don't really matter. And again, I still want to learn more about this, um, but it luckily gives us a number and 25 is generally within reach for what mm -hmm. we have technologically available. So it's generally a positive sign for using ring signatures is that, you know, under any of these adversarial conditions combined, realistically, it doesn't matter beyond 25. <laughs> so I, that's really good to know. It means that so far with with the, mo the, the primitive models that have been identified that uh, we're within striking distance, which is generally good. We might not need ridiculous ring sizes for it to reasonably matter. So do you then see that being as kind of a few uh, hard forks away? Um, it's hard to say. Um, they, MRL still supports our current plan to go to 11 next month. And um, I would need to know more information before I make any recommendation about a specific number. Sure. But it's good to know. I mean, this is another piece of evidence that is reinforcing these sort of numbers making sense. Um, I believe two months ago on a, on a, a previous Monero coffee chat, um, Brandon gave out the number of 22 as an example, and I think that's pretty similar to 25. So it's more and more evidence that's sort of getting us closer and closer to what number is optimal for what privacy guarantees are necessary or desired, and how we can make sure that the technology can cope with the efficiency trade-off mm -hmm. and make sure mm -hmm. that we optimize it as much as possible. Very nice. That's that sounds encouraging, because um, that yeah I mean the idea so then once we reach that number it's like we're that's it for ring signatures in terms of uh, 
Yeah. What we that, can do. That, exactly. And that's what he, he mentioned. He's like, do you know how tempting it is for me? Like the amount of work that we put together on all of these, this ring signature analysis to say that, oh, well, we could just bump it to 25 and never have to worry about it again. Let's just do it. Let's do and, it. And, and again, <laughs> I want to reiterate that that's not, that scenario is not exactly what it is yet. We're not set on these heuristics, right? Uh, we don't necessarily feel comfortable with them yet. Mm -hmm. But if we were feeling more comfortable about these assumptions and knew a certain number was what we needed, the temptation to just jump to it and not have to worry about this ever again is is, right. is extremely tempting. So who who essentially is going to be making that decision? How is that? How does how would you describe that process? So things like ring signatures are typically a, like a developer-focused and especially research-focused decision. It's kind um, of a debate, debate between the researchers and the developers, or? I mean, generally, yes. So, so those sort of deliberations will mostly occur between the researchers and developers, um, similar to what we had mostly with the fixed ring size uh, decision, where uh, Monero has decided uh, based off feedback from especially researcher developers and the wider community to move to a fixed, like a man, you have to use a ring size of 11 next month. You can't choose like 12 if you wanted to choose 12 um, for, for various reasons that were debated. And does we'll anybody, going does anybody else offer kind of um, uh, input into that? Like how about like the, the wallet developers or the exchanges, are they kind of influencing those decisions as well? So not especially strongly, but if they had an opinion, we would, we would of course listen to it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, generally exchanges and pools probably want the lowest ring size possible for the sake of saving fees. Right. But, so you, you need to hear their perspective, but make sure you don't just take it as is. Um, and uh, but but their their perspective is important to make sure you're not just choosing an an overkill ring size, so to speak, that mm -hmm. would cause more harm to the to the network big good. It's important to have those perspectives in mind. Um, but ultimately, these things like the ring size are are ultimately a, a mostly research decision to determine under what situations these matter and. Uh, the, the, the work put in by researchers is generally much higher valued because they have all the hard numbers behind it. And you, you are, of course, welcome to jump in and present your own hard numbers. I mean, that's really what I've done. I don't, I'm not even done with my undergrad yet, right? So, so I'm not, I don't really come from this strong academic background, but um, like I made the case for ring size seven in the spring. So if you can make the case for uh, like, a, like a research case for any specific point, by all means, do it. Um, so, it's important to keep those in mind, but they're generally a mo like a mostly research decision because you need to ultimately make that trade off. And people are, of course, welcome to present the evidence they have in helping determine that trade off. Mm -hmm. But um, and, and it's possible not everyone will agree with everything. But um, Monero will, will move with people that. Uh, like it, it, the vast majority of people agree in a certain way, we'll, we'll typically prioritize that. Well, we'll prioritize that perspective, similar to what we did with uh, Monero's previous proof of work algorithm change, where not everyone agreed. I'm sure some people disagreed somewhere, but generally people agreed to change the algorithm, and we went forward with it. And um, we'll have a similar decision-making process uh, 
with with ring size and stuff too. Why? How do you think uh, Monero's kind of maintained uh, its ability to stay as a cohesive community, and uh, you know, as opposed to like Bitcoin, where there's a lot more contention? You think it's just a matter of our age, and we're we're a little we're a little younger, and we haven't gone through those growing pains yet, or do you think we're there's also kind of something fundamentally different about the community? It's a combination of things. Um, I think mostly it's that the community's smaller and has less stakeholders that are, are very vocal. Um, so I think that I mean it helps to be able to be a little bit more lean um, from that perspective. Also, I think though we have very well-defined values of privacy, of um, of fungibility, of security, of decentralization. So making these changes, which might be large protocol changes, such as the addition of Ring CT, might is is generally less controversial because when people get involved in Monero, they understand that privacy is an important part of its identity. Right? It's important for us to provide a high level of privacy. And so we can make these decisions easier when people in the community are generally for privacy or on the same page there. So I think that over time, uh, there will be more conflict if Monero continues to grow larger. You'll have people with, with a large number of resources that try and push agendas in different ways. And it's something the community will have to deal with. Um, that, that's, that's a main function of the Monero community workgroup mm-hmm. is to provide a platform for people to have these debates essentially and um, get their point across and provide updates on what they've been doing. So we have a group of volunteers um, that have essentially made it our goal to try and get the community like functioning as well as possible, right? Um, but I'm, I, I can't say for sure that there will be no conflict or anything. Right. We just have to, we have a team in place that is there to address these situations and we are hoping that it'll work. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what else we can really say for a de- relatively decentralized system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we're putting our best foot forward and at least we can say we've done that. <laughs> I think, um, Skepticism, you know, the fact that we kind of promote skepticism in the community has has got, you know, really attributed to that, you know, so, you know, nobody's fearful of coming on to Reddit or wherever and, and stating their their controversial opinion. And everybody's like surprisingly open to it. And, and in fact, if you go the opposite direction and you seem to, and you act as more of like a fanboy for things. You're kind of like that. That's that's kind of frowned upon more so than the skepticism, which I think is uh, kind of helps create that cohesion among the community because everybody's kind of taking more of a scientific approach, saying, "Well, we don't really know. We're all trying to figure this out together. Let's kind of be open to all options and ideas and look at it from like a scientific perspective." Yeah. And that- Exactly, and the best way we can continue to make sure that happens is education, right? It's, you're going to have new users that show up that don't know much. I was a new user that showed up and didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And by some mechanism that I don't understand, I decided to learn about it despite it being difficult. <laughs> I don't know why, what my motivation was really. Um, 
and you need to make sure that people can continue to learn more, are, are immersed in the general values that uh, Monero has had over time, understand the history, and hopefully teach them how to, to use their inspiration for good, I guess. Um, people have different opinions. People probably hate the way that Monero has done some things in the past. And sure. We'll continue to address those on the Skepticism Sundays. And uh, <laughs> because we know that we're not always going to make uh, perfect decisions or there are going to be mistakes that happen. And uh, I think accepting that reality is just a, is going a, a long way itself, making sure that we're on the best foot forward there. So you want to you want to wrap it before we wrap it up? I just want to I guess talk about your latest uh, funding request and then funding requests in general. How you've you've uh, done them a few times. I how's that worked out? What's the process? Okay, yeah. So Monero uses a crowdfunding approach to raise money for projects. Uh, when I was traveling around Europe last year and giving talks about Monero specifically, um, it was expensive to travel around. And the community helped through three proposals that I created to reimburse the travel expenses. So I wasn't making money on this process. Um, for the first proposal, I, when I took the money out or converted back to, to dollars from Monero, they were worth more than the initial proposal was. So I deducted those costs from previous, from the next proposal and so on and so forth. So, um, if you have an idea for something that's Monero related, you can you you can pitch ideas on this form funding system proposal. You can address it uh, or introduce it to the community on Reddit during the Monero community meetings, which is supposed to be going on right now. And right when we wrap it up, I'm going to jump right into that meeting. Uh, okay. And uh, discuss those situations. And my most recent one was to cover some of the costs to travel to Seattle for a blockchain conference there and give a talk about Monero. So that will be next month. Um, it's on a Tuesday, so it's a little awkward for me to get to, but I found a way to make it work. And the conference is covering the flight costs, but uh, the community, I've asked the community to reimburse the hotel and basic transit costs because it's unfortunately not directly accessible from the airport. And um, I'm going to another one, which I don't need a, uh, another conference next month at North Dakota State University. Um, they are covering the costs, so I don't need the community um, support there, luckily. Um, that will be on the 27th of next month. So those will be the two speaking engagements I have coming up. Um, I obviously encourage everyone to just go out there and sign up. The worst thing someone can say is no. Um, give yourself a fake tie. I'm kidding, but... <laughs> just say you've been involved um not be truthful about the the involvement you've had and if you want to get more involved speak to people make sure to let me know i'm samsung galaxy player on reddit message me and say hey i would like a copy of your slides i want to give a talk i'd be more than happy to share that with you that's great um do you see the the funding system staying this way or do you think it could be improved do you think it's kind of a necessary component to this open source uh, the open source nature of Monero, because I mean, you look at other projects uh, like Dash and the, you know the way they're funding their development um, with uh, you know essentially a percentage of the block reward going towards funding, or things like Zcash that have the Z Corp. Um, 
what do you think of our system versus theirs and kind of the pros cons and if it's working? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, there are there are pros and cons to both sets of models. Um, I think that the form funding system that we use is a good fit for Monero. I think that it it, it reinforces our community values of of not wanting to have these structured companies or even foundations around uh, around supporting the project. So I think it is a good fit for Monero. Um, I think that there are many advantages that we're missing out on, unfortunately. Um, there, there's a lot of value from the guarantee to know you'll have money from a block reward, for instance. Um, but there's also a lot of cons that the miners don't like that. The community would never have it. So um, we, we, we need to weigh those pros and cons. And the form funding system itself can use improvements to update to the latest and greatest mechanisms of the Monero protocol. It's not user-friendly and at the moment is sometimes riddled with spam. But uh, we've been in a process of eventually migrating for a few months now and hopefully we're able to actually do that. And um, just, but despite all the shortfalls, I think it's generally a good strength. It really has pulled through and paying for necessary uh, contributions to the Monero ecosystem. And I think it's here to stay in one form or another to continue to provide a mechanism for people to raise money. Um, of course, people don't have, they can use GoFundMe or whatever if they want to, but uh, this is just a really accessible tool that has, it has been success, very successful in the past. And um, I hope it will continue to improve to make that process even easier. But even as is, without receiving an update for two years or more, it still functions pretty well. It's like, Craig, it's like Craigslist. Yes, it's like Craigslist. <laughs> it's riddled with spam, enough. and it's and it's a UI out of two thousand, but it works. But it gets the job done. Yep. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on. I hope uh, we can chat again in the future. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, Doug. I really enjoyed coming on. I'm so happy that you're doing these Monero talks. Um, we, it, was a, it was a gap that was sort of left in the Monero ecosystem, so I'm really happy that you're able to be out here speaking with a lot of the contributors, and I encourage you to continue being active, message me anytime, pop by the Monero community IRC channel, and we all love to see you there, too. Will do. We'll keep it going. All right. Thanks so much again. Thanks, uh, take man. Care. Have a good day. You too.